Well, good morning. I'm going to turn that off so I don't interfere with myself. Uh, so uh, today is the uh, first of the new year, like I said just a little bit earlier. Uh, so I am glad that you are uh, with us this morning, and we're going to start with uh, our new year off with a brand new sermon series uh, called Portraits of Jesus. And what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at just a couple of the stories of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark and sort of draw out uh, some interesting things there. Uh, and I have to begin by telling you just a little bit of a story uh, about this thing called Disney Plus, because this this is sort of where I was getting this this idea for this sermon series is if you don't know what Disney Plus is, it's a streaming service owned by Disney where you can go on and you can watch online all of their, uh, uh, their entire catalog of libraries. We're talking movies, we're talking the entire Marvel universe is there. I'm a superhero nerd. Not sure if any of you can relate, but I love superhero movies. Uh, there's all their classic ones on there uh, and, and really just a, a whole a whole bunch of different different stuff, and uh, I was I was there. I was trying to choose what to to, to view, what to watch, and I came across uh, the original Toy Story. Have Have you ever seen Toy Story uh, back from the 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 nineties when it was released? Uh, and I thought, man, I haven't seen this in in a while. I'm gonna sit down and watch it. Uh, I didn't get all the way through it because I got bored and I turned it off. Uh, but I noticed something that, that, that stuck in the back of my mind when I was trying to decide on what sermon series I was going to do was that the, the main character, Woody, uh, has a pull string on the back of his, his body that when he pulls it, he has about five different things that he says. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But just imagine any child's toy where you pull the string. Uh, somebody's poisoned the waterhole is one of the things that he says. Uh, There's a snake in my boot is another one of his, his sayings. And, and what I came to realize is that we've almost done the same thing with Jesus is that there are five or six really good things that Jesus said which are inspired by God, they're in Scripture, we believe them, we love them, but they're the ones that we put on the coffee cups. They're the, the verses that if you want a, a quick one about Jesus and, then, and you just pull his pull string, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Good job. And they're good. And they're biblical, but I wonder if when we, we think of Jesus, we think of this very safe, very uh, 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 toned-down Jesus who never really ruffled any feathers, and we've, we've just got those pull strings memorized on our coffee cups and on our T-shirts and on our bumper stickers. Uh, and so what I want to do in this sermon series is actually go through uh, Mark's Gospel and sort of maybe pull out some stuff or, or, or come to it from a different viewpoint and maybe pull out some different things that uh, we don't normally look at when we look at the life of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be spending uh, almost the entirety of our time this morning. We're going to walk through this story. This is the story of the baptism of Jesus. It's, it's uh, interesting. Uh, before we get to the story, though, I want to just speak a couple of minutes about Mark's Gospel just to put us in the right frame of mine understand what's going on. Uh, the authorship of Mark's gospel, you'll never go to believe this, is a guy called Mark. I just blew your minds. Actually, it's, a, it's believed to be a guy who goes by the name of John Mark. Um, Mark is sort of 
sort of the, the shorthand, you know, uh, his full name is John Mark, uh, and it's believed that John Mark was actually one of the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out. So you had the, the 12 disciples that were with, with Jesus, uh, the entirety of his ministry on earth, uh, uh, sort of those 12 core people, but then there were other disciples uh, in the, uh, that Jesus sent out in a couple of stories. And so it's believed that John Mark was actually, uh, uh, later on after the crucifixion, a disciple of Peter. And so he was a follower, a close friend of Peter, and that the Gospel of Mark is actually the account of Peter. It's Peter's remembrance of uh, the Gospel account. Does that make sense? So, so Peter probably narrated it, he probably dictated it, and it was John Mark that actually wrote it down. And so... Uh, interestingly, uh, Mark is believed to be the first gospel that was written. It holds a lot of structure, uh, similarities to some of the gospels that followed after it. Um, but because it was the first, it's actually relatively low on details. I'm not sure if you've ever compared gospels in all of your studies and, and reading of scripture, uh, but Mark is actually fairly low on certain details. There are certain conversations that don't happen in Mark that happen in some of the other gospels. And so the way to think of, uh, of Mark is really uh, Mark paints a portrait of the life of Jesus, but he doesn't uh, fill in all the blanks. Some of the other Gospels do that. Does that, that make sense? And so Mark's Gospel really does paint this portrait. And one of the things that you can pay attention to if you like uh, watching for words throughout, God's, uh, throughout Mark's Gospel uh, is sort of, it'll be translated differently depending on what translation you have, is this word here, immediately, uh, soon after or straight away. Uh, when Captain Nicky was reading the scripture for us, it appeared a couple of times just in the small section that she read. Uh, things happen in Mark's gospel really quickly. There's not a lot of transition time. There's not a lot of in-between time. He doesn't give us stories. He just says, this happened, and then immediately, boom, we're off and we're doing something else. And so this is the beginning of Mark's gospel. Uh, also notice that when it was read for us, it didn't start with the birth of Jesus. Did you notice that? That Matthew's gospel begins with the birth, and, and John's gospel begins with uh, a weird, in the beginning was the word. But Mark skips over the birth narrative in its entirety. Uh, in fact, he begins his gospel by saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the opening verse. This is the beginning of the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's so that we won't get attached to this this sort of image of Jesus as a baby, as an infant. And I know this is very weird starting directly after Christmas because uh, until the 7th of January, we still have the nativity scene up in which baby Jesus is sitting there. But I think that Mark starts his gospel by saying, uh, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a man named so that we wouldn't get attached to the image of baby Jesus and think that that's the most important aspect of Jesus. That, that when you read later on, when when Jesus is doing some really interesting things when he walks into the temple and he starts flipping over tables and starts driving moneylenders out. Uh, if you've got the image of this very safe, very secure baby Jesus in your mind, you're like, man, that's out of Jesus' character. 
Why is he doing that? But it's not out of Jesus' character. Jesus' character was to get indignant when he saw sinful behavior. I'm not sure if you pick up on that in the Gospels. If you stick with us long enough for this series, you're going to get there. Um, and so, so Mark is incredibly short on these, uh, these sort of details, and I believe uh, that the, the, some of the conversations are missing and some of those details are missing, uh, and I found this quote is the best way that, that I could figure out how to articulate this, but the highest proclamation of the gospel is demonstration and not excl- uh, uh, explanation. And so what Mark is doing is he's demonstrating how Jesus lived, how Jesus behaved, what Jesus uh, thought, and how he followed through to conclusion. Rather than giving an explanation, he gave a demonstration. Now, think about it yourselves in your own lives. Does that, uh, is that not the way we ourselves uh, like things to happen? I mean, uh, we know the expression, talk is cheap. Show me with your actions, not with your words. And so what Mark is doing is he's showing Jesus' actions uh, without sort of the, the unnecessary hindrance of uh, a lot of dialogue. Now, if you're an A-type personality and you like to write things down, these are the three things that we're going to see in this particular story. So if you've got your bulletins, there's a little section on the back called Sermon Notes, go ahead and write these three things down. Preparation, validation, and demonstration. And that's what we're going to look at in the remaining of our time together. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is preparation. So this is what was read to us earlier. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, mark his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so what we look at at the beginning of this story is that John came to prepare the way for Jesus. That's John's entire job. It's why he was called to do what he was doing. It's why he was doing what he was doing. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself came from Nazareth. Now, this story was the beginning of the gospel, but it was not the beginning of Jesus' life. Does that make sense? Uh, at this point, what we know from some of the other gospel accounts is that Jesus was around the age of 30 years old, which means he had lived for 30 years old in a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, in case you were wondering, uh, is nothing. It is a no-name place. Uh, uh, in fact, they even had a saying in the ancient world, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, some of you were born in towns that are no-name places, where if you, if you gave them the, the name of the town, people would be like, huh? And you'd say, yeah, it's, it's halfway between so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, yeah, I know that, that highway. Right? And so, so I'm going to shock you all. I was not born in this country. Now, I know. What? Some of you are highly shocked. I was born in a place in Australia. I was born in a town called Lismore. You've all heard of it, right? It's a massive town. 
Ah, yeah. No, no one knows where Lismore is. And I'm going to be completely honest, I don't know where it is. In geography, when, I w- when I'm thinking about the map of Australia, when I'm thinking of like where New South Wales is versus Queensland, and I think, where's Lismore? I don't know where it is. I came from a really a no-name place. And really, can anything good come from Lismore? Like, really? I don't know. Uh, and, and so I find this interesting. Jesus came from a no-name place. And, and, and this is what's, what I find interesting. The authority that Jesus spoke with did not match the background that he came from. Now, I want you to transition out from a physical location and think about your own past, some of the mistakes that you've made, some of the sins that you've committed uh, in your past. And sometimes what we get in the back of our minds is this idea that God can't use me because I come from this place. Nothing good can come from this place. This place is an unexpected place. This place is a lowly place. It's a place of sin. It's a place of shame. It's a place of this, whatever. And God can't use me because I came from this place and what God does at the beginning of the gospel of Mark is says says that even if Jesus came from Nazareth a place that uh, he has no background to match this even though he came from Nazareth which is a no-name place that no one likes no one goes there no one is famous comes from there even though he comes from this place he's going to be used for mighty things And what's interesting is if you carry it over to the conclusion it doesn't matter what your past is, God can still use you to do incredible and mighty things. It doesn't matter where you come from. The authority in which you you sit as a Christian does not match the background from which you came. Not a single amen? Okay. I was going to say, if if you're asleep, that's okay. I I can keep preaching even if you're asleep. I'll do it. And here's something else that we show that we see that new beginnings come from dead ends. Jesus came from Nazareth, but Nazareth was a place of preparation for Jesus. It was a place where he learned scripture. By the time he got to to John being baptized, he already had memorized at least the first five books of the Bible. Yeah. So for you and I, I get, I get sleepy reading through the book of Numbers. Like I start, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. No. You get to Numbers and you're like, man, maybe most of the Bible through in a year. In fact, I think, Captain Nicky, you did read the Bible through in a year uh, last year, right? How bad was Numbers? I don't know which is worse. Numbers or Leviticus. All right. Numbers or Leviticus. I'm just saying, it takes you a while, right? takes you a month to get through this book. It's a, it's a, now, can you imagine memorizing that when you're five years old? Because that's, that's Jewish tradition, is that uh, after, after children, males, uh, get to the age of five, from the ages of five through ten, they start memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not just read through, memorized. And so Jesus came from a place called Nazareth, which was a no-name place, yet it was a place of preparation. And sometimes what God wants for you is that you come from a place of preparation that maybe you're not entirely sure why you're there, but God has a purpose that will come later on. In addition to that, when we look through Mark's gospel, what we find is that John's baptisms uh, were a rebuke of the leaders who made principles more important than people. Um, 
And here's the thing. Sometimes, I'm not going to say sometimes, we live in a world that makes principles more important than people a lot of the time. This is the policy. This is the procedure. This is what we have to do. We have to do it this way, otherwise we get in trouble, and it doesn't matter if we run over people in the process. And so what... What John was doing was actually rebuking the, the spiritual leaders of the time because he had made the, they'd made the principles more important than the people. And so we continue reading in Scripture. Oh, sorry, uh, uh, this is from a different uh, uh, gospel. Uh, because Mark uses this immediately without delay, it sometimes means that the details of the story are missing from Mark's account, uh, but in Matthew we actually read the reason that Jesus is baptized. Because Jesus wasn't a sinner. He never sinned, so he didn't need to be baptized to be cleansed of his sins. So why was Jesus being baptized? And so what we read here in, in John, uh, uh, sorry, in Matthew 13, 14, it says this, uh, John would have prevented him, uh, prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But then Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What we're seeing is an act of obedience on the part of Jesus and John. And so, what we've got is Jesus going through into the desert where John is baptizing, even though Jesus doesn't need to be baptizing. John recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and him saying, I don't need to baptize you. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus saying, no, I need you to baptize me so that I can be obedient to my Father's will. And it brings us to the second point that we see in this story, and that is validation. So we've had uh, preparation, and now we've had validation. It says this, Mark 1, 5 through 10, All the country of Judea and all the Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one, he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, this is Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Immediately, again, we see that word. Now, we live in a culture that tells us uh, nobody can tell me what to do, right? We live in a place and a time when people say, you can't tell me what to do. I get to live my own life. I get to do what I want to do. I get to say what I want to say. You can't take that away from me. I get to do whatever I want to do. And what we see in this story is that even though Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the remission or forgiveness of sins, Jesus demonstrates his power in his submission to his Father. Jesus gets baptized. And immediately, a dove descended, symbolizing peace and the Holy Spirit, and the Father validates the sonship 
of Jesus. And so the scene is Jesus goes under the water, Jesus comes back out of the water, and immediately the heavens open up, a dove descends upon Jesus, which symbolizes peace, but it is also the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, and a voice from heaven declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Now, the words themselves, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased was a direct validation of Jesus's ministry and it came after his obedience but before his ministry. I want you to, to, to notice that particular progression. The validation of Jesus's ministry came after his obedience but before Jesus actually did something. And in today's culture, we want to be validated before we get the obedience done. We want someone to tell us we're doing a good job or this is the right thing to do before we actually follow through in obedience. But before Jesus performed his first miracle, he is validated by the Father. There's a couple of things I want to point out. God's love for you is never based on your performance. This is incredibly important. God's love is never based on your performance because if it was, he wouldn't love you. If it was based purely on your performance, you could never do enough on your own steam for your own righteousness and forgiveness of sins. Uh, in fact, the book of Isaiah says that our righteous acts, apart from God, are like filthy rags to him. And so what we learn is that uh, God's love for us is never based on our performance. In fact, uh, he didn't validate Jesus here because of what he did. He valid Jesus, validated Jesus based on who Jesus was. This is my beloved son. And I've got to tell you, as Christians, you are the sons and daughters of God, which means when God looks at you, he will look at you and say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in him or her I am well pleased. And the validation comes after the obedience, but before the ministry. And the other thing is that we want the dove to come down before we get into the waters of obedience. We want the peace of God to come and settle on us before we've taken a step out into obedience. How many times have you heard Christians say, you know, I'm going to pray about it, and once I get the peace of God, then I'll know it's the right thing to do. I want to push back on that just a little bit because I don't think the intention might be right. And I'm not trying to judge a person's intention when they say that. But the actual statement, I'm going to wait for the peace of God before I step out in obedience, is backwards to what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that the obedience happens first and then the peace of God comes down. And it happens in that order. Not just in this particular place, but in many places throughout Scripture. Peace comes after obedience. And what I find interesting about that is God's peace might be waiting for you once you step out in obedience. There might be something that you are, is weighing heavily on your heart. There might be something that you don't know whether or not you want to do. 
give you a very easy tip. Read scripture. And if what you think God is asking you to do doesn't go directly against scripture, step out in obedience and faith. And then wait for the peace of God that passes all understanding to fall. God's peace might be awaiting your obedience. Now, that leads us on to the the final bit here, the demonstration. We've had the preparation, we've had the validation, and now we're opening up to the demonstration. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out, Jesus, into the wilderness. We see again that Mark really likes his abrupt changes in narrative. He's not going to win any awards for writing. But what he does do is immediately changes us, uh, change the setting of the story. And, and I always, this is an interesting question that I, that I thought, why does the dove lead you into a place where Satan is waiting? Have you ever thought of it like that? It says that immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And we all know what's going to happen in the wilderness. Jesus is going to go 40 days and 40 nights without eating. He's going to be tempted through that entire period by Satan. And then at the end, Satan's going to come up with three massive questions for him. If you are the Son of God, then uh, uh, change these stones into bread so that you can eat. If you are the Son of God, uh, bow down before me and I will uh, allow all the nations of the world to bow before you. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and the angels are going to bear you up and you're not going to be harmed and it's interesting to me that the dove leads Jesus into a place not only where Satan is waiting but it also goes against what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us and lead us not into temptation And yet, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into a place of temptation. Because the desert is the place where you prove the promise of God. And again, you've got to be real careful here. You're on shaky ground. This is not about anything that you're doing. This is not about your performance. This is about allowing the Holy Spirit to do its work in you to prove the promise of God. But that proving ground is the desert. That proving ground is the place of temptation. It's the place that isn't safe. It isn't secure. And sometimes we want God to protect us from stuff when God wants to use the stuff to prove his power in our lives. This is hard because we have a Father who loves us and who cares for us and has the best plan for our lives that could possibly be. And yet there are times when the stuff that you need to go through or you are going through is the stuff that God is purposefully not pulling away from you so that he can prove how powerful he is in your life. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness into a place of temptation. 
so that the power of God could be displayed. And Jesus had already been validated in the waters, so he didn't need to prove it in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, the very first temptation, Satan approaches him and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The first part of that temptation was to try and make Jesus doubt the validation that he had from the Father. If you are the Son of God. He had just been baptized in the waters. He had just come up and a voice from heaven had said, This is my beloved Son. Jesus gets led into the wilderness. And the first temptation, if you are the Son of God, if you are who God says, maybe you're not. And so... Jesus had already been validated in the waters, so he didn't need to prove it in the wilderness. The other interesting thing at the end of this account is that it says that the angels came and they uh, ministered to Jesus after his temptations. The angels came not before the temptation, but after the demonstration. Sometimes I think it would be a lot easier for our lives if the angels showed up before the temptation so there could be some cheerleaders behind us to to hold us up and prepper us and, and whisper in our ears, you got this, buddy, you got this. But that's not the way that it works. The way that it works is that God wants us to step out in that obedience and to rely fully on his power of the indwelling spirit of the Holy Spirit so that he can prove his power through our lives. And it's only after that happens that then the angels come to Jesus and they minister to him. The angels came not before the temptation, but after the demonstration. Sometimes it would be nice if Jesus just said, you know what, I got this, don't even worry about it. Sit on your couch, watch your football games, I got this. But Jesus asks us, after we've prepared for the obedience. First Peter 5.10 says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I find this interesting because it comes from the book of First Peter. Whose narrative was it that Mark was recalling? Peter. So Peter, after he recalled the narrative of Jesus' resurrection, sorry, after a, a, a baptism, says this in one of his epistles, one of his letters, after you have suffered a little while. He says, God's not going to guarantee you no suffering. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're probably going to suffer at one point or another. It's kind of what Christians do. But after you have suffered a little while, God's not going to leave you hanging. God's not going to leave you without support. He's not going to leave you without anything. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. I'm going to end with a prayer, but I just want to say this. God's got your back. Sometimes it feels real lonely when we're walking in obedience because it feels like we're all alone. 
but God will never leave you or forsake you. And if you're stepping out in obedience, just wait for his power is going to be proved in whatever wilderness or desert that you're in. And then he's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the story from the Gospel of Mark. I pray, Lord God, that you be with each one of us so that whatever season we're in, if we're in the season of preparation, that you be with us. That if we're in that season where we need to be obedient, that demonstration, Lord, just be with us. Guide us. Place your hand on our lives. Lord, we love you. We know that we can't do anything without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Open our hearts and our minds so that we can learn what you have for us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to close.